0: My guest today is Larry Edwards, Chairman and CEO of Eon Group of Companies and President and CEO of Global Fusion Institute. Larry is a visionary entrepreneur and technology developer with a strong background in entrepreneurship and marketing and more than 40 years of business experience in the U.S. and abroad. For many years, he operated a successful public relations and marketing firm in Hawaii, which specialized in tourism and real estate development projects. His understanding of the global market and technological vision have brought about significant breakthroughs in the lighting and energy fields. Recognized as a leader in economic diplomacy, he is noted authority and speaker on issues of global trade and development, particularly with regards to emerging economies. Today, his Eon group of companies employs its proprietary technologies throughout Africa with focus on housing and infrastructure, waste to energy and microgrid power, agriculture, and vocational and technical education. Mr. Edwards is a graduate of the University of Hawaii with a BA degree in Asian Studies, and he's also a member of Mensa International. Larry Edwards, welcome into the corner
1: office. Thank you, Brant. Happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's great to have you here. And I'm I'm sitting on the coast of Connecticut. We had our first snow day, and it's actually uh, staying through the night. So I think we're going to be with it for a few more months. But uh, you are quite far away. Tell us where you're sitting today.
1: I'm sitting here in Luanda, Angola, where the weather is quite different than that. It's, it was a hot day, <laughs> a hot day today, and it rained considerably. So
0: <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, Angola today would be in the middle of summer, right, pretty much, or going into it?
1: Going into it, yes. That's yeah. correct. Or is it
0: really just kind of wet and dry seasons down there?
1: It's primarily that. There's really no yeah. uh, four seasons, not really even two seasons. It's it's basically the the Sort of the cool, cool, wet season and the slightly warmer, drier season.
0: Well, listen, you're you're probably the furthest away of any CEO I've uh, interviewed yet on the podcast. So it's it's great to have that connection and uh, we can hear you loud and clear. But uh, I know you didn't get your start there, and that's kind of where we always like to begin. Uh, mm-hmm. If I recall, you're from the great state of Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so tell us a little bit about yeah. Tell us a little bit about your early years, where you grew up, and what your early family life was like.
1: Okay, I uh, I was um, raised on a farm um, ten miles north of Woodward, Oklahoma, which is at the northwest corner of Oklahoma, just before you go into the Panhandle. All right. Um, uh, we had a small farm, 640 acres of farmland in the sand hills. And uh, I, I'm an only child. I was raised there with my parents um, um, up until I was 15 when we actually moved into Woodward, into the town um, and off of the farm. But on the farm, uh, our whole family was around. My grandparents on both sides, two or three uncles and families all within about a, five-mile radius.
0: Right, right. And Dad, Dad grew up on the farm as well. Has he come from a long line of farmers?
1: Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, my my grandfather on on the paternal side um, originally was born in Illinois, and then the family had uh, moved to, when he was younger, they moved to Winfield, Kansas. And then later, he moved his family down to Alba, Oklahoma, and then eventually bought and settled on a farm there north of Woodward, and so yeah. my dad was was raised there, born on that farm, along with some uh, with three sisters, uh, no other brothers, and uh, so the whole family really, from the time Stayed from around area, yeah. uh, the around 1900 or so was was right. there in West Oklahoma,
0: right. And were you uh, expected to take over the farm business or, or did they know at an early age or did you know at an early age you'd take a different path?
1: I think that um, at the at the very early age, up until I was maybe in of grade school, well, everything was kind of oriented to the farm. But it wasn't long sure. after that that, uh, that that changed. And, of course, when the family moved to into town that was the end of the farm uh, the, the farming right, was right the farm properties were sold and at that point i had no real interest in uh, or thought about really uh going back yeah. into the farm life the door the door closed in many ways in that regard yeah were yeah, you a good yeah. student in school yeah i was i <laughs> um i i have to you know don't I like, don't like to brag about things or anything, but I was actually, it's something that I just kind of uh, uh, grew up with because from the first grade right through high school, I was always the, the number one academic student in the class. And wow. yeah. so I didn't know anything else. That's just all I knew wow. was that I was always at the top of the class.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did it come easy for you? Did you kind of have a, a sixth sense, as they say, for the learning uh, at that time as you're growing up? Uh,
1: yeah, I didn't really think about it much. I just did the work in yeah. the school and everything. But it it came very easy, and I think the one of the main reasons for that, which I definitely inherited from my father, was having a a very good memory. Um, I was yeah. I I. Um, I, I almost never took notes all the way through school, even into college, because it was easier for me to just pay close attention to what we were studying and being taught and then remembering everything. than to remember it, yeah. You know, tight de, delay yeah. by by writing things down.
0: Yeah. Awesome. What about other activities? Were you involved in sports, music, theater, debate?
1: Not debate, but all of the others um, sports. <laughs> Sports uh, has been the big thing through much of my life, even, even while working in later life and everything. I, was, uh, I played uh, baseball, basketball, as far as team sports in, in high school and everything, um, and in college. Uh, um, uh, and then actually I played pro baseball very briefly. Um, oh, you did? Oh,
0: cool. Yeah, in major exactly. leagues, minor leagues?
1: Um, I got to. Tri- I was in Triple A, so one step below yeah. the majors. Yeah, um,
0: awesome. What positions you
1: play? I was a pitcher, like my grandfather. Oh. I inherited that from my grandfather, not my father. <laughs> he, ne- he never played any of those sports. The only thing he ever did sports wise was a little boxing. Right, but, right, right. Cool. But uh, my my grandfather was a legendary baseball player in Northwest Oklahoma. I mean, everyone for he played until he was like fifty five, and he played on you know, league teams um, that traveled around over Texas and yeah. Kansas and yeah. things. And so that's where I got the baseball that's where you got stuff. it, yeah.
0: Did it come easy for you like your like your studies
1: did? Baseball? Uh pretty much. Uh, yeah. the pitching part. My grap- pitching my, part, my yeah. grandpa to- taught me how to throw my first curveball and that became really my out pitch all through high school. Yeah. Uh, but but um uh you know I was not i'll tell you right now, I was not a great athlete you know as far i wasn't fast to foot or anything like that, but anything I could do, particularly with my hands, you know uh shoot a basketball, throw a baseball, play ping pong I played international standard ping pong so anything I could do with my hands and arms i I was fine with. <laughs>
0: That's great. And you obviously have been a, an entrepreneur, as we talked about in your bio. Did that start at an early age as well? Were there entrepreneurial things you did as a kid?
1: Um, in a way, but it really started a little bit more in in um, high school and then into college. Not too uh-huh. much before, although, you know, I had a lot of interests along things like that, but no real experience in it. Again, being a younger, I mean, being a, a single- um, uh, child, you know, uh, only child,
0: only,
1: yeah, yeah, only yeah. child. Um, but taking, you know, kind of roles of leadership always just kind of came natural. Again, it wasn't mm. something I just set out to do. It just kind of came that way. So I was, you know, took took roles in leadership. I organized. I've always been an organizer, organizing teams when I was in in those days, you know, and um, and all kinds of activities and and things like that. So that was really the introduction to that kind of thing. And the business entrepreneurship came later.
0: Yeah. Got it. Well, you went on to college. I think you've gotten two BAs. I think you went to your local uh, uh, Oklahoma Christian University and then on to the University of Hawaii at at Manoa. Tell tell us a little bit about the choices you've made in terms of uh, choosing those schools and what what you chose to study and why.
1: Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I went to Oklahoma Christian again. My father, after we moved to town, he he had actually uh, uh, been um, uh, a minister, a preaching minister, for uh-huh. since he was about thirty-one, and and we moved to town when the larger congregation in town um, asked him to come and, and preach full time. He was an appointment right. teacher before, yeah. um, so that. That is really what led me to Oklahoma Christian uh, that started at Central Christian in Bartlesville and had just moved to a new campus, developed a new campus in Edmond, Oklahoma, about two years before I graduated from high school. So okay. it was just Edmonds, under-
0: right outside of OKC, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's on the north. Yeah. It's a north suburb, really, of yeah, Oklahoma right, City. Right. So that's what led me there. OK, but then. The reason, what led me to Hawaii was that I was studying language. I was particularly interested in languages. When I went to college in the first place, I was really, because I had, you know, I'd been a good student in almost all of those areas. So I was really kind of battling in my mind what I wanted to study, uh, whether I would go the the technical route with engineering and math and all, because I'd, I'd, I'd been, you know, very good in those. Or wow. in the humanities route because I I was I was a good I was already a writer I was I had worked for as the sports editor of the Woodward hometown newspaper while I was in high school and so I ended up going the humanities route I'd also become interested in foreign languages and started teaching myself with books and things from the time I was in about the eighth grade I guess so. Wow. So when I went, I ended up going the humanities route at at Oklahoma Christian. I was really taking the liberal arts program at that point, the first two years uh, without declaring a true major. But I took um, I took three languages there. I took French, Spanish and Japanese. Wow. um, Unofficially on the Japanese side because it wasn't a formal class. But anyway, um, I, I took those and that's what developed the interest in in uh, Asia and particularly Japan. And so I transferred to the University of Hawaii where I initially declared a major in Japanese language, but after about a year, I decided to expand that. So I changed to a major in Asian studies with a minor in Japanese language and that's what I uh, got my degree in. By the time, with the transfers and everything, by the time I graduated, I actually had enough semester hours for a phd right <laughs> <laughs> but they were really taken all as an undergraduate so they didn't count for a phd but i had a right. 185 semester hours so it was <laughs> wow
0: wow a lot of studies and what was that first job that you took out of college larry
1: out of college i continued what i was doing while i was in college i mm-hmm. i was a part-time sports writer for initially the honolulu advertiser the morning paper uh, while I was going to school. And then, uh, when I was, when I graduated the star bulletin, the afternoon paper, which was the much larger circulation newspaper in Hawaii at the time, uh, offered me a full-time position. So I, I, that was my first job full-time.
0: Right. Right. Cool. And, uh, how did you like that? Was that what you kind of set your sights on getting out of school or was it kind of that, you know, needed to get that paycheck coming in (laughs) as soon as possible
1: both uh you know i mean i've been doing it already i've been writing a sports writer since i was 16 and Uh at this point you know it's already nearly 10 years later and and so um at that point i thought i would probably just end up being a journalist as a career Right, but but, uh what
0: but something happened happened. tell us what happened happened.
1: (laughs) the um the largest advertising agency in Hawaii, a um, company by the name of Melissa Valenti Advertising, um, had just made the decision to turn their public relations services into a profit center instead of oh. instead of purely a support service for their advertising clients as it had been previously. So uh, to start up that department, uh, they hired gentleman by the name of bill cook who had been the city editor of the honolulu advertiser morning paper right. and, and um, so when he started to build up his department actually for pr executives and writers he went back to the people he knew at the newspaper yeah. um, and that included me he hired yeah. me and right. two other guys um, and uh, so that took me away from journalistic writing into you know business writing uh, effectively yeah. And um, it was, that was quite an experience. I was there for only about a year because after a year, Bill Cook was selected by the re- current governor of Hawaii to manage his reelection campaign. Huh. And uh, th- since the owners of the agency were supporters of the governor, they gave him permission to do that, right. gave him a leave. So we continued yeah. to work there, but the governor was reelected. And upon re-election, he then called on Bill Cook to be the uh, director of public information for the state of Hawaii.
0: Ah, interesting.
1: So when that happened, and since he would not then be going back to the agency, right. the owners went back to the original plan of just making the PR function a support for the advertising. So they let all of us go that he had hired. Wow. Huh. But they did it in a nice way. Okay, they said, "Not our fault. We they were happy with our work. It was just a change in policy." So right. they told us if we wanted to, if any of us wanted to, like start our own PR consultancy mm. or anything like that, uh, they would they would support us in that, and that, that you know, and that that we were free to take the public relations clients that were purely public relations clients for our own. Sure. Wow. So that was when I first went into business purely for myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, terrific. You know, and how many clients did you take over with you?
1: Initially, initially I had about four, but they were all four or five. I think it was all good clients. We had um, one of the leading uh, developers. This was during the condominium building boom years in Hawaii and, Yeah. And an engineer uh, and <clears throat> developer there who was one of our clients. Uh, Uh, came on board with me and he stayed with me for a long time, even after I later moved to the Philippines. Um, And I had um, the Mauna Kea Beach Hotel as a client. I had the Hawaii Hotel Association, the Waikiki Improvement Association, the Downtown Improvement Association. So I was doing all their newsletters and publicity and things. And the the Hawaii Visitors Bureau.
0: Gosh, that's a big, big chunk of change. Did you have a big team? How many folks did you have on that? That's probably the first time you started managing people, right?
1: Uh, and it, mostly it was a one man yeah. job all during that time. But I, at the end, I, I started having you know some people assisting me in different, but yeah, it, it came, that led into that. Right,
0: right, cool. Well, fast forward—you've had an illustrious career, and, and we would we, we we'd take several hours to go all through it. But I definitely wanted to hit on some of the highlights. I know that you've, you know, have the Global Fusion Foundation and Institute, and obviously the Eon Group of companies. Tell us a little bit about the path towards those, because you've been doing those for about the last fifteen or twenty years, and uh, you know how you kind of ended up doing what you're doing now in Angola.
1: Okay. Well, what led me and uh, that, as like I could say, I had my two things. I had my own, my, my public relations consultancy there in Hawaii for several years after that. But out of that consultancy grew another thing because one of my clients um, was a Danish fellow who had a 57 foot schooner ah. and, and was running dinner cruises, you know, off of Waikiki and Diamond Hill. Sure, for all the tourists. Yeah. Right. And uh, so he asked, you know, he asked me to represent him and promote his business. So that got me into into the sailing end of it. And, wow. you no, know, interestingly, growing up in Oklahoma, you know, 800 miles from the nearest ocean or Gulf or anything, <laughs> I, had, all, I, had, I had, had two things I wanted to do in life. One was to learn to fly, which I never did, unfortunately. But the other was to learn to sail. And that sail, gave me the yeah. opportunity to do that. And uh, then I discovered, in the process of working with him, that something that I wouldn't have wouldn't have realized until then. But Hawaii had no yacht charter agency at all, uh, unlike the Caribbean and other island nations and the Mediterranean and all, where it's a big business. There it was not; it had huh. never been organized that way. Wow. So I started. I, I continued kind of a career of starting new things. And yeah. I started the first um, private yacht charter agency ever in the state of Hawaii.
0: Wow. Amazing uh, to think. And that was in the sixties or seventies?
1: That was uh, in 1975. Yeah, 75. Um, yeah. When I did that. Okay. I did that in 1975. And uh, that was, that was a very interesting period. I had, a lot of, ex- first of all, I had yachts listed for charter with me that belonged to Peter Fonda and the movie director, John Ford. Um, right. And uh, some, you know, and a couple of other, those being kind of standing out that way. And then right. I had clients. Uh, I mean, I had charters that um, I, I did. I did an evening cruise charter once for Ike and Tina Turner.
0: No, uh, great. <laughs> and, and, did they fight on board? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, they didn't fight <laughs> on board. At that That's time funny. they weren't doing that too much. And then later <laughs> on the, on the biggest uh, uh, vessel I had, which was John Ford's Aaron or 132-foot cats. um it was chartered. We chartered that for two weeks actually for inter island cruising and all for Andrew Lloyd Weber and Tim Tim Rice and a oh bunch of gosh. their colleagues from uh, jesus christ superstar because it was oh, right wow. after it had made it big on broadway he took the whole yeah. crew out for it to hawaii Fun. so anyway that was doing all of those things and then later later on um i got the um i got talked into initially by uh, the one who was actually organizing for the world bank an international business conference um that was held in Manila in the Philippines mm. in um, in June of nineteen seventy nine, right. and um, and that's what led to the big changes in my life from that point yeah. on. Because I yeah. went to that, he he talked me into going, and it was a week long event with really high powered people there from all of the development banks around the world, a number of the major corporations like at the time Control Data Corporation was a sponsor and and all and um so i ended up making the decision to move to the philippines to take advantage of the business opportunities that grew out of that conference Fantastic. uh, and a couple of subsequent trips i made back for like six weeks at a time over the next year before i finally made the move in june of 1980 a year later and i ended up in the philippines for 11 years
0: wow fantastic yeah
1: Fernand
0: so, Marcos periods, I believe. Right. Wasn't he the president very, at that time? Yeah.
1: Very definitely. I was I was there for I mean, it was still un, it was under martial law when I got there. Right. Yeah, um, sure. And, and, and then I went through yeah. the people power rep, uh, revolution after uh, that deposed him, ended up deposing yep. him and uh, seven coup attempts over the next few years through 1989. <laughs> uh, so I, I have often referred to that period there as a laboratory in crisis management. <laughs>
0: That's And I'm sure that was an understatement, right, Larry? <laughs> yeah, it,
1: it was interesting. I mean, multinationals after the Philippine economic crisis hit after Aquino was assassinated at the airport uh, yeah. in 1983 and before Marcos was deposed in by that people power revolution, um, and, uh, that, that financial crisis hit and multinational corporations were moving out at least for the, yeah. you know, maybe not permanently, but for the duration to wait it out because it, you know, the, the peso devalued from eight to the dollar to 24 to the dollar within wow. uh, six months in six yeah. months. Crazy. So, and that is when we, right at the time when we decided to, to go in the direction we did with our. Uh, Uninterruptible power equipment uh, because we had already become you know we had introduced solar panels and we were the first manufacturer of solar panels in the Philippines in like 1981. Wow! Um, Mm. But then then when the crisis hit, we lost our contracts and all for that because all foreign exchange contracts were canceled due to the financial problems and. But we saw an opportunity. We didn't want to leave like the rest of them were. We we saw an opportunity because of the already bad, but further deteriorating, deteriorating power conditions. And we had answers to that, um, yeah. with our equipment that no one else had. And that, that set us on the course that we've been ever since. Of course, it's now expanded further beyond power, but that was our core business for about the next 20 years.
0: Yeah right and you built up companies around that um, that idea basically right
1: yeah we we um we i came back in 1990 when i moved back because we were being asked to to provide our equipment back in the us and right, by american right. companies we had served in, in the philippines like colgate palmolive and and others um so i came back in 1990 to really research the market back in in the us and and um, i got very strong support from phillips from ge all because they said there is nothing in the u.s market anything like what we had Um, so that that really put the impetus there so for the next from from then from 1990 up until about 2007 we were primarily operating in the u.s supplying the u.s market for those cells right and, right. and then, and then that, but yet we didn't forget where we came from. See, we, we were, we developed what we were doing in a developing country. Okay. To, to answer yeah. the, the power needs and all that you find most often in developing countries. And, yeah. uh, we had, we had determined, at the time that. You know, the ultimate market really for electrical power uh, equipment and things was, uh, was Africa because it was the most unelectrified continent on earth. During that period, we were marketing in the U S some interesting times too, because you will remember in 1993, the world, the first world trade center bombing.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: And, um short you know they had like 3000 smoke inhalation injuries of people that were fighting their way down dark stel- dusty stairwells after the bomb went off in the basement that knocked out all of the power and um including emergency lighting which was only tied to the generator that got blown up in the basement so right shortly after that i get a call from the port authority of new york um through an introduction of, a, of our manufacturer's rep in New York, uh, who had already gotten us into the New York City public schools with our lighting systems. And so we get a call and they want me to come to New York and demonstrate our system to, the, uh, to their engineers. And so I find myself in a room with about 40 or 50 engineers uh, where I'm doing a demonstration of our uninterruptible lighting system. And subsequently, they installed our system throughout both towers of the World Trade Center, then the Lincoln Tunnel and the Holland Tunnel, because they were afraid of possible terror attacks on those tunnels that would have caused all kinds of disruption, of course. Right. So, um, so that was an interesting uh, thing that happened and, and, and kind of helped. We ended up in a lot of federal facilities. We were installed in the uh, House of Representatives uh, at NASA, and many other uh, uh, GSA headquarters, many other things with the government, plus a lot of colleges and universities and high schools were putting our systems in. So so yeah. on the then we decided, okay, it was time to make a move overseas again. And in 2006, uh, we, we hosted, along with Oklahoma Christian University, where I, of course, went my first two years of school, uh, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda uh, on his first visit to Oklahoma, where a wow. yeah, it was to sign an agreement for a presidential scholars program that would take the top ten students out of the country of Rwanda, coming out of high school, and send them on full scholarship to Oklahoma Christian, um, wow. and um, and that program to date has put more than a thousand students very successfully through that program um, Fantastic. Yeah. And, and and on that visit when he signed the agreement dr o'neill the president of oklahoma christian who's now retired from there but on our board um, asked me if i could possibly arrange for the president to speak to the oklahoma legislature and i had all wow. of two, all of two weeks notice to put that together <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but fortunately we were able to pull it off as able to get it done. And, um, uh, uh, they called a special joint session of the, of the legislature, wow. uh, just for him to speak. And while I, while he was speaking, I was doing a technology demonstration in one of the meeting rooms at the state Capitol for four of his cabinet ministers who were, who had joined him on the trip. One of whom was right. the minister of um, infrastructure and energy, which was of course, particularly down our alley. And I, that's right. when I, right after that presentation, I got invited to go to Rwanda and bring our technologies and all there. And, um, and that, that's what led to me actually physically for the first time going to Africa, which was that opened up Africa for you. That right? opened up that Africa nice. and then I've been here at, you know, going and coming and everything, but I've been here ever since 2007.
0: That's great. And tell us about, you know, are you still pretty much doing the same thing? Is it power? Is it lighting? You know, what is the uh, infrastructure uh, projects that you've been working on most?
1: Okay, we came at invitation, of course, as I mentioned, primarily to talk to to um, talk about power Um, Our two things are our power. Uh, we were actually the first in the world to to do microgrids in the Philippines in the early 80s. Nobody was even using the term then. Nobody knew, you know, right. it, it wasn't a popular term. Now, of course, everybody knows microgrids. Uh, right. So we we were asked to come to, to um, present our power technologies, which included the microgrids, but also in the subsequent years, we added w- uh, technology for waste to energy. And that was of great interest. So... Um, so I have been to several countries in Africa, the first thing to present the waste to energy, uh, projects, but then that led into the others because we address, we're diversified that has been expanded now to include all of the, essentially the basic needs which the basic needs are power, housing, um, food, you know, production and, uh, right and of course education technical education and sanitation we're in all of those areas um right and as it's turned out now here in angola it's kind of a great circle for me that i never thought would happen i'm i'm right now the the vast majority of our pro- projects and efforts here in angola now are in agriculture farming huh.
0: Huh. Like, yeah right you're full, full circle now larry <laughs>
1: Exactly. But it's a lot different. uh, It's a lot different stage than it was growing up. Like I say, we had a
0: 640
1: acre farm. Now we have 600. Well, it's actually 1.5 million acres, 600,000 acres of land
0: here. Amazing. And what what are you uh, farming or helping to farm primarily?
1: Well, we're getting ready to launch the actual farming activities in about March. We've been You know, it's taken a tremendous amount of planning and and organizing and and determining what crops go where and all of this sort of thing with that much land. So we're now at the launching standpoint. And one, I'll tell you, it it covers the gamut. It's divided up into into six areas, which the USDFC, International Development Finance Corporation, advised us to do to work structure it this way. in six areas one is plantation crops second is grains and hay third is uh, horticultural fruits and vegetables fourth is meat yeah. production fifth is dairy production and sixth is aquaculture and th- that's wow. all on the production side and then of to go with that is another area which is all of the processing manufacturing of things like fertilizer you know inputs fertilizer livestock feed and then the processing of all of the things that we produce from meat to fruits right. and vegetables canning you know, and all of that but
0: wow.
1: I would want to signal
0: and is it all for local consumption larry or is it also for export it, it is
1: definitely it's both okay uh-huh. um, the it's interesting that on the local side angola presently imports about 85% of its food whereas Before becoming independent and launching into that 27 year civil war in 19, starting in 1975, they were referred to as the breadbasket of Southern Africa and were were a net food exporter. Right now it's, it's not just doing a project like of our own in a way it's really helping rebuild the entire
0: agriculture
1: industry of a whole country.
0: Right. Right. And now, did you move to Angola when you, I mean, you mentioned your Rwanda was your first connection back. Did you come to Rwanda and then uh, Angola kind of came out of that? Because there are uh, different countries, certainly different culturally and, and also geographically within the continent.
1: Yeah. Initially, we were invited to Rwanda, but uh, on the very first trip, we also uh, spent time, I spent time in Kenya, Tanzania. And right. uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, we were invited to all those places. Um, then later on, um, we, we actually, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis that just set everything back for everybody, including us, yeah. uh, we yeah. paused a bit. And although we were keeping our contacts going, we were not really active until I got in, uh, pressured <laughs> really by Zambia. To come and and uh, meet with them in January of 2016 again on the waste huh. of energy, and so from there we we I I was in Zimbabwe in South Africa, and all during this time Angola was pressuring me to come, uh, but <laughs> I, it was not easy to do. Um, at the time they were under Dos Santos, the former president, and the rules on getting a visa to come to Angola were very difficult. You had to apply in person at their embassy in your home country. You could not do it from a third country. And since I was in Africa, I couldn't get a visa to come here. I had to go back to Washington to get a visa Uh, to come. Um, Interesting. So I first arrived here, actually, then in in October of 2016. So it took me about nine months to be able to organize all of that to get here. And at the time, I'll tell you, very candidly, if anybody had told me then that, that Angola would be the primary place we'd end up developing most of the projects, I'd have said, you're crazy.
0: <laughs>
1: Funny how those things happen, huh? It, it is. And now, of course, I've been here for two years now straight because I came in January, of, almost two years, I came in January of 2020 on the last trip intending to be here for three months and then back and forth. Right. But, of course, I got right. locked down here in March. Yeah. <laughs> i been here ever yeah. since. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Fabulous. And how big is your team there now on the ground?
1: On the ground here right now, it was big, a little bigger before because of COVID. I can't yeah. bring it. You know, I haven't been able to bring some of them back, but that's going to change shortly. Right. I've got probably – uh Altogether, together, maybe about 30 people on the ground, including our local yeah. lo- local people here yeah. as well as. Right, right. And I've got a whole team. And how is
0: the workforce there? Are you finding educated labor and the, f- the people you need to help with regards to these various projects you're
1: underway with? There are. I mean, there are, <laughs> they have a huge, huge unemployment. It's like 52% unemployment. So there's plenty of labor. Wow. Now, the problem is wow. the is having the skills and the training. They need that desperately, yeah. which is why one of our main projects, tied with all of this, is we will be a, a building and operating uh, vocational technical schools in association with the Career Tech system of the state of Oklahoma. Right, right. So we'll be doing a lot of training, uh, but there's there are a lot of people look, desperately looking for jobs, or you know, that are capable people. Uh, and there are there, there's still an adequate number of people, at least to start with, that do have training that that are engineers or technicians and things yeah. that, that are well educated, yes, yeah, that are relatively well educated. We're also how,
0: how long was uh, how long was Angola a Portuguese colony?
1: Uh about 500 years.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's qu- quite a long time.
1: Yeah, that about like there. Spain in the Philippines, about 500 years. Yeah. You know it. Um, right. It ended in 1975, so yeah, very long time. Uh,
0: Yeah, fabulous. Well, looking ahead, and and we're just about out of time, but I've got a couple extra questions for you. Um, You know, we, we hear so much about the potential of Africa, and yet there's always so much disappointment. And you're one there that's been on the ground there, <laughs> not by choice, but, you know, obviously you're, you've kept your, your, your head down, tail up working on the things that you're working. What, what's the key to unlock the potential there with so many resources and, you know, a, a fairly well-educated? Uh, you know, uh, labor base and, and obviously, you know, a world that would love for Africa to, you know, come up alongside and, and, and not be, uh, uh, you know, be an exporter of things, not necessarily always an importer of things as you shared
1: earlier. Okay. I'll, I'll come up with my, what a lot of people have taken from, from me now as my, now become famous three Ps. You have to have, (laughs) it really applies to any, almost any doing business in any developing country on the ground. Uh, patience, persistence, and presence. Mm. Uh, and if you don't do all three, if you don't have all three, you might as well not start because you're not likely to be very successive. successful. Right. Indeed. Right. Um, they're still old school in the sense, um, you know, kind of like Japan and, everything, and some of the others that they want to see you across the table from them. Maybe not yeah. all the time, right. but you you got to spend yeah. you got to be there. Uh, they want a personal right. relationship, not a long distance one. And they right. they've been burned so many times in the past by charlatans and cheats and things, but, as well as being yeah. exploited, you know, for five hundred years by the European colonial powers and things. That they're very skeptical. And so you have to kind right. of prove yourself to them, but if they see you there and they see that you're committed, that it gets you a long way. I've had so many people in several countries tell me, and from Rwanda to Kenya, to here, to South Africa and everywhere, they, they I've literally been told that they look at America, many many of the business people and all, look at America as their last hope, because they said they've mm-hmm. been exploited by the Europeans for 500 years. Uh, now right. they're being exploited by the Chinese who are trying to take over everything. Yeah. Okay. So, well, right, right. so they look at us and they, and they know enough, of, most of them know enough about history to realize we were not a colonizer. Okay. We were a colony uh, like, like that right. been for a period of time. So, so that gives us a heads up, but the, the difficulty is is getting American companies to come here and do business. Um, yeah. They'll, they'll gladly sell product over here, but to come here and get on the ground and because they say we don't want exploiters, we don't want people long distance just selling us stuff. We want partners yeah. that can bring technology, invest, bring finance, yeah. bring know yeah. you know know how and 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 work with us, not um, right. you know. So that's the key. If you do that, if you build your relation, it's all relationships, foreign. Business, international business is based on relationships, whereas domestic business anywhere is based more It includes relationships, but it's more based on transactions, because if you're in a that's right, you know, if you're in a like in America. You can do business, if you're in Oklahoma with somebody in New York, you never meet and feel fairly confident about it for the most part because the information is there and you're in the same system, the same legal system, same accounting systems, same general culture and everything. But when you cross borders, it's different.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true, Perfect. so true. Thanks. For well, Larry, life. you've been very generous with your time. We always have one last question we ask all our guests, and you know that's kind of what career and life advice we'd we to give to someone that's listening. That you know maybe has their eyes on the corner office, or more importantly, you know maybe sees their career entrepreneurial uh, base like yours. You got the three Ps. We got that down. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the, important.
1: That's the first thing for international business. Is, is yeah, memorize those and and commit yourself to them. You, it takes commitment, okay? It takes commitment you yeah. get, because you can't just fly in and out. I mean, you know, uh, they, it takes commitment for you and it takes commitment to get them to believe in you. So, yeah, I would say in terms of giving other otherwise advice, I know like the question asked, like what would I tell my younger self maybe years ago? Right. As well. right. And I kind of came up with this. I would say, first of all, don't limit yourself. Too many people limit themselves. Mm okay secondly you really need to trust others as much as possible okay but also the corollary to that is you've got to be very aware there will be threats that sometimes have to be dealt with firmly and people who will try to take what you have or take advantage of you no matter where you are right you have those things to do but you've got to balance that line you You don't want to be constantly not trusting anybody (laughs) Uh, that's, that's not a pleasant way to live, but at the same time, you have to really be, have your radar, out. you have to be aware um, uh, uh, as you move forward. So then you, I would say you need to try to build relationships, firm relationships with people you can learn from and who will also look out for you and your company's best interests, not only their own. So, Um again, be persistent, patient, don't easily give up or be led astray from your own convictions and your object uh, objectives. Yeah. yeah, so true.
0: Well, Larry Edwards, Chairman, CEO of the Eon Group and President, CEO of the Global Fusion Institute, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Brent.